Well, it's wonderful to be with you again. I look forward to the day when we can actually be in the same room other than with a bunch of digital things. But uh, praise God for the digital things because <clears throat> it allows us to, to meet together. Lord, we thank you and uh, we, we recognize, first of all, God, that without you, there is no reason to gather together, really. You have forged an eternal, eternal relationship with us. <clears throat> we are so grateful for that. And Father, may we enjoy hearing your word today, not because of the one who brings it, but in spite of the one who brings it, because your word is pure alone. Uh, so Lord, we just ask you to speak boldly uh, through your word today. Father, we pray for those in our flock that, uh, that are struggling, <clears throat> that are isolated and alone. And Lord, we pray that you would just lift them up during this time. We love you, God, and we just ask these things and pray these things in your name. Amen. So last week, we studied the crucifixion in some detail. And we learned that Jesus was placed upon the cross at approximately 9 a.m. And for the next three hours, a carnival-like atmosphere ensued. There were perhaps thousands of people viewing this spectacle, and they were jeering and scoffing and mocking and hurling insults at Christ. The soldiers stripped him of his robe and divided it into four pieces, one piece for each soldier. There were upwards of one or two million Jewish pilgrims in Jerusalem for Passover. And in the temple, the priests had been preparing for the sacrifice of thousands of Paschal lambs. And by the way, Paschal just means Passover. So they were preparing for the sacrifice of thousands of Passover lambs. And according to the law, these sacrifices were to begin at the ninth hour of the day of Christ's crucifixion, at the close of God's judgment upon Christ. And his final cry after three hours of suffering as he pays for the final sins and his father has not yet comforted him, his final cry is, into your hands I commit my spirit. <clears throat> John does not follow it that way, but that was last week's lesson. So we're going to pick up a little bit on the story. John 19, 28 through 30 says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, he said to, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Matthew 27, 51 says this, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And that's where we left our lesson last week. So this week, we're going to continue that lesson. <clears throat> if someone were to ask you, what the Bible is about. I wonder what we would say. There are a number of things we can say, and they would be correct. But here's something I think everyone will understand, whether they know Christ or not. It's about a broken relationship. And most of us, if we've lived life a little bit, we've had our, our heartaches and our hearts broken at times, 
whether that's from um, loved ones, children, spouses, whatever that may be. But we can relate to that. It's about a broken relationship. And within this broken relationship, the one who was unfaithful is being relentlessly pursued by the one who was wronged. And that person is offering forgiveness and redemption. <clears throat> this really is the central theme of the scriptures. The Bible is about a broken relationship between God and man. So this morning we're going to do a little time traveling. We're going back several thousand years to a very dark time. As a matter of fact, we're going back to the time before light was created. Now we're given a bird's eye view of these dramatic moments by the words that Moses penned in the first book of the Bible to us known as Genesis. So Genesis 1, 1 and 2 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and <clears throat> the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. So this is what we learn in verse 1. God created the heavens and the earth. And in verse 2, we learn this, and the Spirit of God was hovering, the, hovering over the face of the waters. However, they are not the only ones who are present. There is a third person who was there as well. We read the following in John, which, by the way, was written by the apostle who wrote the last book of the Bible, Revelation. We have bookends here. John 1, verse 1 says this, In the beginning was the Word, and that is capitalized, and it means Jesus. So in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. Jesus was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Jesus, and without Jesus was not anything made that was made. So we see here that the Holy Trinity was present and active in the creation of the universe. The Holy Trinity has always been, and it is, and they will forever be. They have always been in community or in relationship. They are complete in and of themselves and in no need of anything or anyone else. So a good question might be, if the Holy Trinity is complete in and of themselves and in community, in other words, they were not lonely, then why create? And part of the answer to that lies in God's final creation, Adam. So we read that God created Adam in his image on the sixth day. So why was Adam created? Believe it or not, the Bible gives us the answers to that. I have several answers for you. God created Adam for his glory. Isaiah 43, 7, Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Number two, God created Adam and Eve to bless them 
and to populate the world, Genesis 1.28. And he blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. God created Adam for good works, works that would reflect his creator. We read this in Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Number four, God created Adam to be praised by him. Isaiah 43, 21. The people whom I formed for myself, the reason I created them, that they might declare my praise. And finally, number five, God created Adam so the cross would be necessary. I'm going to repeat that one. If you've gone to the Gathering Community Church any length of time, this is no surprise to you. But God created Adam so the cross would be necessary. <clears throat> Romans 5.8 But God shows us his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So God who is eternal created a way to die for you and me. It's one of those mysteries. Why would God want to make the cross necessary? Well, we have the answer in the same scripture, Romans 5.8, to show his love for us. Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, in other words, we earned nothing, Christ died for us. So remember our question? If the Holy Trinity is complete in and of themselves and in community, then why create? The word is relationship. He was preparing a paradise for his most beloved cre creation, for whom he would later die to prove his love for us and for Adam and Eve to enjoy and to populate and to be in relationship with him. So in the first few verses of Genesis, we are reading an incredibly passionate story of God creating a beautiful and living masterpiece. The pinnacle of his creation is Adam. He created him in his likeness, and God joins him in the garden where they have fellowship, a very tender relationship. We also read that Adam had no suitable helper, so God created Eve, and the three of them fellowshiped. Adam was in need of a relationship on a level that he could fully understand. And God granted that relationship. So what we see in Genesis 3.8 is they walked and talked with God in the garden in the cool of the day. This was a common occurrence. Then, we're skipping ahead quickly here, we have a lot of ground to cover. Eve is tempted and falls and immediately tempts Adam who falls. Now, this incredible intimate relationship between God and man was severed. It was the equivalent of spiritual adultery. It grieved God and condemned all of mankind to death. A single decision changed everything. And at that very moment, the moment when Adam ate the forbidden fruit, 
God could have, because he had the right, he could have struck both of them dead. And this would have been the end of the story, if not for God's mercy. By the way, in between Genesis chapter 2 and Revelation, everything is in the Bible is because of sin. Everything in the Bible is because of sin between Genesis and Revelation. It has to do with the sin of man and God's desperation, not because he didn't know what to do, but to renew that relationship. So the entire Bible could have been this thick, but it isn't because of sin. We have to make sure we can grasp this. The relationship that was established between God and Adam upon his creation was broken when Adam disobeyed. So Adam was immediately found guilty of betraying God and was sentenced. However, because of God's great mercy, he substituted an animal in their place and then clothed them with the skin of the animal to cover their sin. And this was to make them presentable before the Lord and to restore their relationship. And now the relationship is complicated and it's going to be a struggle. The word that best describes this type of a sacrifice is substitutionary. So we can sacrifice things in honor of someone or something, but it is not the same as becoming the sacrifice for the sake of others. We don't even have that ability within us on the same level that God has that ability. So the word that best describes it is substitutionary. And this further sets the stage for Christ's ultimate substitutionary sacrifice on the cross. So as we go in our, in our little time machine, we're moving forward. Now we're in, uh, moving forward a little bit in history. There's a man by the name of Abraham. And most of us are familiar with his story. God had chosen him as a patriarch, as the head of, the beginning of, the Jewish nation. He received a son late in life, and he dearly loved him. And this is what we find happening in Genesis 22. After these things, and you need to go back and read the first part of Genesis to get that in context. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, take your son, your one and only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. We're going to jump ahead to Genesis 22, verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram. The ram was caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. 
So this was a shadow of what God would go through with Jesus at Calvary, except he didn't rescue Jesus as he did Isaac. Symbolically, Jesus was the ram in the thicket that died in place of Isaac. Now here's the short story. 400 years later, and there's a whole lot in between there and here, Abraham's descendants would be enslaved in Egypt. And then God used Moses to free them. So we're moving forward a few thousand years. God leads Israel out of Egypt. They were there for 400 years. God leads Israel out of Egypt. And during this time, the presence of God was visibly with them. We read that God led them by day with a pillar of smoke and at night with a pillar of fire. God revealed himself to this nation. God creates a sacrificial system during the wandering in the wilderness to continue a relationship with him. So you see, God is getting closer and closer to the relationship he had with them in Eden. So he creates this sacrificial system. This is a holy God reaching out to sinful men, trying to restore a relationship. And after Israel left Egypt, God instructed Moses to build a sanctuary suitable for him, meaning God, to dwell in. And this sanctuary, or tabernacle, was to be built with very strict guidelines that God provided. So he designed it so that they could tear it down, carry it around, and set it back up again. And the story continues on in Exodus chapter 33, verse 7. Now Moses used to take the tent, which is another name for the tabernacle, and pitch it outside the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. So when you hear someone talking in the Old Testament about the tent of meeting, it was the portable tabernacle. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone in to the tent. Now verse 9, when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud, meaning the presence of God, would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent so no one else could enter. And the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Now verse 11, to me, is amazing. I've read it so many times, and as many of you have, then you go back and read something again, and you think, why did I not see that? This is so tender, and it is just absolute proof that the God of the universe, the God of all things, who cannot be in the same room with mortal man or they would die, is so content, so intent on restoring that relationship, and that God receives joy from having a relationship with us. Listen, verse 11, Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. To me, that's monumental. The relationship Moses had with Yahweh, 
is incredible. The Lord used to speak with Moses, and God put his presence at the tent <clears throat> opening so no one else could come in as they were having this conversation. Can you imagine the God of the universe calling you his friend? Well, I hope you can, because that's exactly what Jesus calls us. He calls us friends. Same God. Only Moses had been consecrated by God to enter into his presence. Now, the word consecrated means to make holy or to dedicate to a higher purpose. Moses was the first priest of Israel. And he entered in to the presence of God, and God guarded the entrance. So it was just Moses and him. Are we getting the full picture yet? Adam committed spiritual adultery against God and severed the relationship of all mankind. And the one who was offended has never stopped pursuing the offenders to forgive us and restore our relationship with him. If you have not yet received Christ, know this. He is relentlessly pursuing you right now. The Ark of the Covenant and the Temple Veil. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was to be the specific place where God would dwell. Now, this does not mean that God was like a genie in a bottle. So he's out there over the universe and somehow he condenses himself into a little funnel and goes into this ark. This simply means, because God's spirit cannot be contained, what this means is God designated the ark as holy ground. And just as there was holy ground on Mount Sinai where Moses was instructed to remove his sandals at the burning bush, so there would be restrictions while in the presence of the ark. You had to be consecrated, first of all to go into the presence of the ark as the ark had been designated as holy ground. So the ark served as a throne of God. The ark would have been constructed and crafted to reflect the majesty of God. If we fully understand the holiness of God, we want to present ourselves well before him. And some would say, well, that's only Old Testament. No, it's not. It doesn't mean you have to wear a suit and tie, although I kind of enjoy the tie every now and then. I'm really missing that. So if you want to buy me some new... These are, this is blue, and the tires would be great. So here's the deal. God says, I'm going to dwell upon this thing that, you, that I've given you instructions how to build it. And it's going to be holy ground. And so if you want to read an amazing description of what God told them to build, Go to Exodus 25. For all you woodworkers out there, this is kind of fun. He, he, he instructed it to be built from acacia wood. Now, acacia is all over the globe anymore, but there are many, many different kinds of acacia, just like there are many different kinds of pine and oak. Acacia wood is 53% harder than European white oak. For woodworkers, you'll, you'll see that you don't want to sand that by hand. The other thing is a certain kind of acacia is, um, um, has thorns on it. And one's called the cat claw thorn. 
and the thorns are hollow and they look like a claw. And uh, I don't think that was by accident. So this was this is a prophecy. Even the way the ark is made is a prophecy of Jesus Christ. It's covered in gold. Read the description. You'll love it. Now there's a veil that separates the holy place from the most holy. We talked about a veil last week briefly. But this is the tent of meeting. This is the portable tabernacle. So we read this about the veil. And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked onto it. In other words, angels, images of angels. And you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold, on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate you, the holy place, from the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. This is a smaller version of what will be built in Jerusalem. The veil symbolizes the sin that severed the relationship between God and man. For man's protection, by the way. Moving ahead in time uh, to Solomon's temple, 1 Kings 6.1 says this, In the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord, or the temple. Going to move on to verse 19 in 1 Kings 6, the inner sanctuary... Be prepared in the, in, in the innermost part uh, of the house. So set there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high. And he overlaid it with pure gold. Think about that. 20 by 20 by 20 overlaid with pure gold. He also overlaid an altar of cedar. And Solomon overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold. And he drew chains of gold across in front of the inner sanctuary and overlaid it with gold. And he overlaid the whole house with gold until all the house was finished. Also, the whole altar that belonged to the inner sanctuary, he overlaid with gold. So is it any wonder that pagans would want to overthrow Jerusalem if for no other reason to get the gold from the temple. Would be millions, maybe, I don't know, hundreds of millions of dollars in gold in our terms today. But then we read in 2 Kings 25.9 that Solomon's temple was destroyed by, the, by uh, King Nebuchadnezzar. The next and final temple is Herod's temple, and it was the grandest temple of all. For most of Israel's existence, they have only been able to approach God through a third person, Moses, and then Aaron, and the priesthood. 
Once every year, the high priest enters the Holy of Holies in the temple and makes a sin offering. It's a sprinkling of blood on the mercy seat. This is an area that is separated by a veil approximately 60 foot by 30 feet wide and at least an inch thick. The Holy of Holies was a sacred place. The high priest who entered, uh, who entered into the Holy of Holies was put on a rope leash in case he died while performing his duties. He also had bells on so they could hear him moving around in there. The problem with the system was that the sacrifices were only good for one year, at which time they were repeated. And really, but for the grace of God, the sacrifices were not good for anything <laughs> because the sin of Adam is so much greater than um, what can be made up for by simple sacrifices. It's just God's grace that those were appropriate. But then it still didn't help because we kept sinning. The high priest was not sinless. The sacrifice were animal sacrifices with animal blood, making a sacrifice for the, for the only creation God called beloved. The animals were not willing sacrifices. They just followed someone on a leash. And the sacrifices were not for future sins. So even as he's making the, sac making the, the offering in the Holy of Holies, we're outside sinning. All that's taking place. But this was the only system that people knew or understood. So the temple was sacred. The holy place was sacred. And the Holy of Holies was sacred. Their system to them was sacred. And their traditions to them were sacred. And this takes us back to where we left off last week. John 19, 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. At three o'clock in the afternoon, as the priests were making their last-minute preparations to begin the Paschal Lamb sacrifices, there would have been thousands of lambs. They had places that were specifically built to chain those lambs in, the, in parts of the temple. They would line them up in a row. One would be slaughtered. Another family would bring their, their lamb. Can you imagine the blood that flowed? Three p.m. The priests were making their last-minute preparations to begin the Paschal Lamb sacrifices, and at three p.m., God's final sacrifice breathed His last breath on the cross. Father, into Your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, He breathed His last breath, and at that moment, everything changed. Matthew 27, 51, we read this, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. <clears throat> so Jesus completed his ministry of reconciliation. 
So what does that mean for the temple? The author of Hebrews says this very well, and if I may, I'm going to read to you several verses. Hebrews 8, beginning with verse 1, says, Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the, front of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man, for every to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Now this is one thing that happened with Moses on Mount Sinai when he went up and conversed with God. God let him see the tabernacle in heaven. See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as a covenant he mediates is better. Because it's enacted on better promises. Verse 7, for if that first covenant, the Old Testament covenant of the priests and the, and the tabernacle, if it, uh, for that first covenant, if it was sufficient, there would have been no occasion to look for a second one. Verse 8, For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers in the Old Testament, on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is a covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish anyway. So why did Christ willingly go to the cross and suffer and experience the full wrath of his Father and die an agonizing death? He did that so he could take our sins to the grave, leave them there, rise from the grave, conquering death, return to his Father in heaven, that we might know salvation and receive the Holy Spirit who resides within us. Returns to his Father in heaven as our high priest. 
that we might know salvation and receive the Holy Spirit who resides within us. It's all about our relationship with God. You can have no relationship with God unless you know Jesus. You're merely a spectator. In Eden, in Eden, Adam and Eve walked with God. Upon our salvation, God the Holy Spirit walks within us. God knew what he was doing. We have a more wonderful relationship than Adam had with God before he sinned. Now the Holy Spirit is within us. And the question I have for you is, do you want this relationship with God? You can have it. It's available to you. Most of you will reject it. That's what, just what the Bible says. But I pray you are not one of those who reject it. But if you want that relationship, this is how you receive the relationship. You just merely go to God the Father through Jesus Christ. Just a simple prayer. God, I'm not saying I understand it all, but I understand this much. That there's something missing. And I keep trying to find the answer to that, and I can't. And I've heard your gospel maybe hundreds of times, and I've never made the decision, but now I want to. You do not have to understand what takes place. God understands what takes place. And this information will come to you as a child of His, because you'll have the Holy Spirit within you teaching, teaching you these things. And you just simply say, I repent. I want to turn away from the life I have. I, I know it, it isn't good. It isn't right. It isn't complete. And Lord, I want to receive you, Christ. I want to receive you as my meaning in life. As the reason I get up in the morning, the reason I keep persevering throughout the day. I have the Holy Spirit with me. He's a comforter. He's our instructor. And he walks through the day with us. I hope you heard these words today. They're wonderful words. God has an amazing story. And God is about relationship with you. Maybe we can sing this together as we close. Mm -hmm.